You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading the 175th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. With this episode, we're going to pick right back up where we left off last time, with Stonewall Jackson's wide-flanking march around John Pope's army, aiming for the big Union supply depot at Manassas Junction on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. Yep. And the continuing stalemate along the Rappahannock River uh, clearly favored Pope, since his numbers would only increase as units from the Army of the Potomac arrived on the scene. In fact, the 1st McClellan's troops, Samuel Heinzelman's 3rd Corps, and Fitz John Porter's 5th Corps had at last begun to arrive within supporting distance of Pope's army. And so Robert E. Lee knew if he was going to hit Pope and hurt him, he must somehow find a way to pry Pope away from the Rappahannock before the bulk of the Army of the Potomac made its appearance. In order to break the stalemate along the Rappahannock, Robert E. Lee decided to send Jackson on a daring sweep around Pope's right flank. Lee was gambling that Pope would react to this unexpected move by retreating northward. And once Pope abandoned the Rappahannock line, James Longstreet would hasten northward to link up with Jackson, and Lee would watch for an opportunity to strike Pope as the Union commander fell back toward Washington. And Stonewall had successfully crossed the upper Rappahannock and then passed through undefended thoroughfare gap in the Bull Run Mountains, and on August 26th, he reached Bristow Station on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad in Pope's rear. Up until that point, Pope hadn't exactly reacted as Lee had expected. Pope had been alerted to Jackson's movement, but the Union commander assumed Stonewall was headed for the Shenandoah Valley. In this mistaken belief, Pope had shuffled his forces around in some confused maneuvering, but he hadn't abandoned his line along the Rappahannock. Since Pope hadn't immediately fallen back from the river, Robert E. Lee couldn't implement the second part of his plan, sending Longstreet's wing northward to link up with Stonewall. But if Longstreet couldn't march in a straight line to link up with Stonewall, he could take the long way around. That is, Longstreet could follow in Jackson's footsteps, making that same wide-sweeping march, and when he caught up to Stonewall, the two wings of Lee's army would be reunited. Robert E. Lee did send Longstreet to follow Jackson's roundabout line of march. 
In doing so, Lee, who accompanied Longstreet, knew that speed was crucial, since Stonewall would be isolated and terribly vulnerable while Longstreet's wing was on the move. And if Pope took advantage of the situation by turning and striking at Jackson with superior federal numbers before Lee and Longstreet came up, then Stonewall would be in big trouble. When last we left Stonewall, he was loose on Pope's rear at Bristow Station on the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, and it was the evening of August 26, 1862. The wreckage of two trains made the tracks at Bristow impassable, but other trains had escaped the rebels and would no doubt be spreading the alarm up and down the line, so Stonewall needed to act quickly if he was going to seize the huge Union Supply Depot at Manassas Junction. That place was only four or five miles up the tracks from Bristow Station, but Stonewall's men were exhausted after marching over 50 miles in just two days. While Jackson was pondering the situation, Brigadier General Isaac Trimble rode up and volunteered to take Manassas with his two favorite regiments, the 21st Georgia and 21st North Carolina. Trimble set out at about 9 p.m., but since his twin 21st combined had only around 500 men, Stonewall soon thought better of the situation and sent Jeb Stewart out with some of his cavalry to reinforce Trimble and, quote, take command of the expedition. The federal commander at Manassas Junction was Captain Samuel Craig of the 105th Pennsylvania. He had in his charge only 115 men of his own regiment, plus eight guns of the 11th New York Artillery and some totally green troopers from the 12th Pennsylvania Cavalry. Craig wasn't particularly concerned when an excited engineer on a train that had just run through Bristow Station said there were some rebel troops at that place. The captain assumed it was Confederate guerrillas since they had been active in the area lately or an enemy cavalry raid but he nevertheless decided to roust out 80 infantrymen and a few artillery pieces and post them to guard the road in that direction. Craig then went back to bed. Jeb Stewart's horsemen reached the Federal picket line ahead of Trimble's marching infantry and sent the Yankees flying back toward Manassas Junction. Stewart decided not to press on at once, though, since he was concerned that now the entire enemy garrison would be alerted. This proved to be a wise decision. Captain Craig, who had been awakened by the disturbance, began to form up his men, but when no rebels followed on the heels of the panicked pickets, he assumed it was a false alarm and ordered his men to stand down. Then he went back to bed again. Just after Craig went back to bed, Trimble's infantry came boiling out of the darkness. The startled Yankees were routed in less than five minutes after firing just a few shots. Trimble's men captured over 300 prisoners and six guns at a cost of two Confederates killed and two wounded. The capture of Manassas Junction also yielded a veritable treasure trove of foodstuffs and supplies and equipment beyond the rebel soldiers' wildest dreams. Well over a hundred boxcars were lined up on over a mile of tracks and sidings, and all were loaded with goods. Numerous warehouses were filled with everything from flour and shoes and ammunition to the luxurious delights like cigars and lobster and cakes that were sold by the settlers. 
We're not sure we've talked about settlers before, but they were civilian merchants who were officially permitted to sell all manner of extracurricular goods, so to speak, to the soldiers. Most of the rank-and-file soldiers, often with justification, considered settlers to be greedy swindlers. The army slang for a cluster of settler shops or wagons was Robber's Row. Exactly. At any rate, at Manassas, even though it was dark and impossible to survey the entire scene, the Confederate troops at once realized they'd just hit the jackpot. Stewart's cavalrymen immediately began taking whatever they wanted. Trimble's infantry, though, were held back and received orders to guard the captured supply depot until Stonewall arrived and decided what to do with all of it. Jackson's immediate concern was to guard against a Union counterattack. Now that he was squarely between Pope's army and Washington, he didn't know which direction he would be attacked from first, if not from both. At first light on the morning of August 27th, Stonewall advanced A.P. Hill's and William Tolliver's divisions to Manassas Junction, while Dick Yule's three remaining brigades and some cavalry were left at Bristow in order to watch out for Pope. The first new Confederate troops to reach Manassas Junction early on the morning of the 27th were the men of the Stonewall Brigade. These veterans were directed to march through the depot in order to guard against a Union approach from Centerville, but many of them couldn't resist dodging Trimble's thin guard line in order to loot boxcars and warehouses before continuing on their way. The men of A.P. Hill's division did the same thing when they arrived at around 9 o'clock. Stonewall himself was too preoccupied to put a personal watch on all the captured goods. He was up long before dawn and rode to Manassas to give the captured supply depot a quick once-over and survey the general situation. There were no Yankees in sight, but he did hear the booming of some artillery just to the east. It seems that some of the Union artillerymen who had escaped capture the previous night hadn't run far. They'd set up their few remaining guns out toward Bull Run, where they had been joined by a big new regiment, the 2nd New York Heavy Artillery, whose men were serving as infantry. The regiment had just arrived in Centerville from Washington, and its commander, Colonel Gustav Wagner, had been alerted to all the commotion at Manassas Junction. He marched across Bull Run at Mitchell's Ford in order to see what was going on, It was there that he linked up with the aforementioned artillery, then headed westwards until he ran into some of Jeb Stewart's cavalry, whereupon both sides opened fire. Stonewall was immediately concerned by this firing and directed A.P. Hill to take his entire division to reinforce Stewart's troopers. Not long afterward, Hill had drawn up 9,000 men and 28 guns to the east of the junction. Colonel Wagner was sufficiently impressed by this spectacle, and he ordered a quick withdrawal back toward Centerville. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. At about the same time, a much stronger federal force began moving toward Manassas Junction from the direction of the railroad bridge over Bull Run. Late the previous evening, Colonel Hopped, the Union Railroad chief, proposed to Halleck that a brigade of infantry be sent from Washington to secure the Bull Run Bridge and from there guard a construction train that would be sent forward to repair whatever damage the rebels had done to the tracks between Bristow and Manassas Junction. Neither Hopped nor Halleck expected whatever Confederates had raided the rail line to hang around very long, though the enemy would probably do quite a bit of damage as long as they were there, so it would be best to simply drive them off with a brigade of Union troops. By midnight, Hopped had located a brigade suitable for the task, Brigadier General George Taylor's New Jersey Brigade from Franklin's Corps. These troops were put on trains by dawn and sent west. Taylor detrained his men about a mile short of the Bull Run Bridge and then marched them to the bridge itself, but he didn't halt there as ordered. Taylor, like Wagner, had heard about some sort of commotion at Manassas Junction and assumed it was just a rebel raiding party, so he began moving in that direction to drive them off. Taylor left one of his units, the 4th New Jersey, to guard the bridge and await the appearance of two Ohio regiments that were supposed to arrive and support him. He led his 1st, 2nd, and 3rd New Jersey regiments forward. Taylor's men were veterans of the Peninsula Campaign, and they formed a line of battle as they approached Manassas Junction. Taylor, though, was totally unaware that he was marching straight toward the line that A.P. Hill had drawn up to meet Wagner's probe a short while earlier. Stonewall Jackson, who had joined Hill, ordered Hill's guns to wait and then opened fire when the clueless Yankees were less than 300 yards away. Taylor desperately ordered a charge against this unexpected threat, but then his men were also hit by a storm of musket fire from the Confederate infantry. Stonewall, who realized the Yankees were caught in a hopeless position, actually rode forward with a white flag in order to request the enemy's surrender. His only reply was a Federal bullet that whizzed past his head. Taylor was in no mood to surrender. Instead, he attempted to continue his desperate advance into the teeth of the rebel fire, but then he saw Confederate horsemen moving to cut off his retreat. He then ordered a withdrawal, which was conducted in fairly good order, until his men reached the railroad bridge, which created a bottleneck as all the troops tried to push their way across to safety. Then, when a rebel battery came up to shell them, the Union retreat degenerated into a rout. About 200 of Taylor's men were captured, Taylor himself fell mortally wounded, and at least 150 other Federals were killed or wounded. 
still more would have been lost if the 11th and 12th Ohio regiments hadn't come rushing up to the scene to cover the retreat. A.P. Hill's men then took cover in some rifle pits that had been dug nearby nearly a year earlier, and the two sides fired at one another across the stream for the next several hours. The route of Taylor's brigade was to have repercussions crucial to the campaign. At the time, McClellan was at Alexandria, across the Potomac from Washington, where many of his troops were disembarking. Little Mac was convinced Taylor's command had been sacrificed because it had been rushed forward alone without cavalry or artillery support. That afternoon, McClellan suggested to Halleck that there was no purpose in pushing the rest of Franklin's corps forward without their supporting cavalry and artillery, especially since the Confederates were obviously present in some strength in Pope's rear, and no one knew Pope's exact position any longer. A short while later, McClellan announced his new policy to, quote, mobilize a couple of corps as soon as possible, but not to advance them until they can have their artillery and cavalry, end quote. Before this, Little Mac had hardly been moving heaven and earth to rush troops to Pope, but the debacle with Taylor's brigade gave him just the excuse he needed to slow down the proceedings even further. As a result of his new policy, McClellan countermanded the orders that Franklin had received to march to join Pope. He also directed Sumner's Corps to remain at Alexandria. These orders were critical since they prevented both Franklin and Sumner from arriving in time to help Pope at Second Manassas. McClellan may have been right in choosing not to forward these formations without their supporting arms, but he certainly could have taken a more aggressive stance than to hold back two entire corps near Washington. A move to advance part of the way toward Manassas with some of Franklin's or Sumner's commands might have persuaded Stonewall Jackson to abandon the area, changing the course of the campaign completely. But, as should already be clear, Little Mac had no intention of exerting any initiative or displaying any aggressiveness in order to help his his arch-rival, John Pope. As we've already seen, in McClellan's mind, whatever fix Pope was in, he deserved. Henry Halleck, if he would have resolutely wielded the reins of command as general-in-chief, could have made a real difference in this sad situation and changed the course of the campaign, But Halleck being Halleck, there was really no use in expecting him to act decisively. And so the initiative would remain firmly with Robert E. Lee. Meanwhile, John Pope had slowly come to the realization that something was greatly amiss in his rear. By midnight on August 26th, Pope understood that his right had been turned. He realized that Jackson hadn't taken his command out to the Shenandoah Valley after all. Pope now knew that Stonewall, by hard marching, had instead gotten into the Army of Virginia's rear. To his credit, once Pope realized what was going on, he correctly deduced that Lee's army was probably strung out over several counties, with its head near Manassas, its middle near Thoroughfare Gap, and its tail somewhere near the upper Rappahannock. This being the case, Pope saw an opportunity to trap Stonewall Jackson and destroy that portion of the rebel army. 
scenting blood, Pope sent out marching orders on the morning of the 27th that would concentrate his army at Gainesville, just west of Manassas Junction. From there, he was confident he'd be able to trap and defeat those Confederates who were east of the Bull Run Mountains, especially if he received help from McClellan's troops as they marched to his aid. It was actually a solid plan, one that threatened to trap Stonewall's force between Pope's command and McClellan's troops, and it was exactly the scenario that Robert E. Lee feared might happen. All Lee could do was continue advancing Longstreet's corps in Stonewall's footsteps so that the two wings of the Confederate army could be reunited as soon as possible. By far the most hazardous march by any Union troops on the 27th was conducted by Joseph Hooker's division of Heinzelman's corps. Hooker was to proceed to Bristow Station and investigate the situation there. Hooker decided to send the 72nd New York ahead on a train to reconnoiter. He didn't like the report they sent back. It said, quote, Enemy in very heavy force. Do not deem it prudent to go on without further orders. End quote. But Hooker was one of the most aggressive commanders ever to lead a division in the Army of the Potomac, and he at once began to push his men up to support the 72nd New York near Kettle Run. Dick Yule, who Jackson had left in command at Bristow, had been alerted to the Yankees' intentions by the rather unorthodox reconnaissance of the 72nd New York, and in response he formed up his three brigades in line of battle across the rail line. By three o'clock that afternoon, Hooker had come up and pushed the rebels back past Kettle Run Bridge, which Yule's men managed to burn before they withdrew. Hooker then continued to press forward, despite the fact his men were exhausted from their 10-mile march in the day's heat, and they were also low on ammunition because they'd never been properly resupplied after leaving the peninsula. In addition, much of the division's artillery and most of the officers' horses hadn't arrived before Hooker marched to rejoin Pope's army. Despite these disadvantages, the sharp fight that developed at Kettle Run was waged on even terms for about an hour. After that, though, federal superior numbers began to tell, and Yule was being pressed hard. He began to fear his line of retreat might be cut off. He was facing the same unpleasant prospect of having to fall back without Stonewall's Jackson's permission, which is exactly what had caused Dick Garnett to be unjustly relieved after the Battle of Kernstown and put up before a court-martial. To Yule's relief, orders finally came from Jackson that allowed him to fall back, if necessary, toward Manassas. Hooker's men had fought hard in the little battle at Kettle Run, losing more than 300 men, including half of the 72nd New York. Yule's losses amounted to less than 200 men, as he successfully shielded Stonewall's flank from the Yankees. Stonewall himself spent all day on August 27th at or near Manassas Junction. He first directed his force's surgeons to appropriate what ambulances and medical supplies they wanted from the captured Federal stores, and he let his officers and Stuart's cavalry take what horses they needed. During the morning, he also gave orders for much-needed foodstuffs and supplies to be given out to his infantry. Jackson's initial plan was to issue some of the captured goods to his own men and hold the rest for Longstreet's troops if they could come up and join Stonewall before the Yankees forced him to evacuate the junction. 
By mid-morning, however, the pressure from Wagner's and Taylor's probes, and then later from Hooker's advance at Bristow, had convinced Jackson that he wouldn't be able to hold Manassas until Robert E. Lee could arrive. Instead, he began removing what he could in commissary wagons and then simply gave his eager troops free rein. Hill's and Tolliver's men soon found themselves in heaven. Stonewall's only concern was that they wouldn't get drunk on the vast stores of liquor. To prevent this, he directed that all casks and bottles be broken and emptied onto the ground. Private Worsham of the 21st Virginia described the men's reaction to having access to the mountains of captured foodstuffs and equipment, saying, quote, Men who were starving a few hours before and did not know when they would get another mouthful were told to help themselves. Well, what do you think they did? Begin to eat? No. They discussed what they should eat and what they should take with them, as orders were issued for us to take four days' rations with us. It was hard to decide what to take. Some filled their haversacks with cakes, some with candy, others oranges, lemons, canned goods, etc. I know one who took nothing but French mustard, filled his haversack, and was so greedy that he put one more bottle in his pocket. This was his four days' rations, and it turned out to be the best thing taken, because he traded it for meat and bread, and it lasted him until we reached Frederick City. Another Confederate soldier wrote, To see a starving man eating lobster salad and drinking Rhine wine, barefoot and in tatters, was curious. The whole thing was indescribable. Stonewall Jackson's bold march to Manassas Junction was certainly a fabulous success. He managed to reach his objective with little trouble and capture the huge enemy supply depot there, in the process forcing Pope to withdraw from his line along the Rappahannock. But by the afternoon of August 27th, the morning's fight against Taylor's brigade and Ewell's clash with Hooker at Kettle Run showed Jackson that the Confederate presence at Manassas was attracting strong enemy forces like a magnet. Longstreet's troops were still too far away to help, so Stonewall had no choice but to pull out of Manassas. Because the Federals were now on the move, Jackson's only secure line of withdrawal was to the north. As his troops marched away late in the day, Stonewall ordered preparations to be made to set on fire all the captured supplies that hadn't yet been carried off. The ensuing blaze was quite a spectacle, and one that was never forgotten by those who witnessed it. Dozens of boxcars were burning, warehouses going up in flames, and blasts from exploding ammunition stores shook the earth. As flames from the burning supply depot at Manassas Junction lit the night sky on August 27th, Stonewall Jackson made his next move, one that would result in the second climactic battle on the already bloodied ground west of the meandering stream called Bull Run. Jackson's plan was simple. He would abandon Manassas Junction and concentrate his three divisions on the old battlefield, seven miles away, and await the arrival of Lee and Longstreet, who were approaching Thoroughfare Gap. What began as a short march by Stonewall's troops turned out to be a remarkable piece of deception. As they pulled out of Manassas Junction, each of Jackson's divisions took a different route. Only Tolliver's troops went directly to the old battlefield. Hill's and Yule's columns took wrong turns and headed off toward Centerville before backtracking to their destination. 
This traipsing across the countryside, even though it was accidental, succeeded in confusing John Pope as to Stonewall's intentions, and perfectly fulfilled Jackson's own maxim, quote, always mystify, mislead, and surprise the enemy, if possible. By dawn on August 28th, Tolliver was the first to reach his objective, and his tired soldiers lay down to snatch what little rest they could on fields still scattered with debris and shallow graves from the Battle of First Manassas a little over a year before. Seeking a spot to conceal his troops, Jackson moved toward Stony Ridge, a wooded crest just north of Groveton and the Warrenton Turnpike on the northwestern edge of the old battlefield. It turned out to be an ideal spot to hide his troops and to be in position to lash out at any unwary Yankee column heading for Manassas. The site was made even more formidable by the presence of an unfinished railroad line that furnished some of Jackson's troops with a ready-made defensive breastwork. That same morning, John Pope was still herding the various units under his command toward Gainesville and Manassas Junction, where he was sure he would corner Jackson. Among the forces converging on Manassas was Irvin McDowell's Third Corps, which was moving eastward on the Warrenton Turnpike on a route that would take McDowell right past Stonewall Jackson's hidden rebels. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, A Self-Made Man, 1809-1849, by Sidney Blumenthal. This book obviously doesn't have anything to do with the Battle of Second Manassas, but we received this new biography of Lincoln a while ago from Simon & Schuster and are just now getting around to officially recommending it. You know, one of the interesting things about Abraham Lincoln is how often his skills as a politician are overlooked or underestimated, and one of the things that this biography does nicely is put Lincoln's early political involvement and career into its historical context. This book takes us up to 1849 in Lincoln's life, and we understand from our contact at Simon & Schuster that Blumenthal's second volume in this story arc will be out this spring, so we're looking forward to that. So that's The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, A Self-Made Man, 1809-1849 to by Sidney Blumenthal. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We have the third and final members episode on the Battle of Secessionville all ready to go and are just trying to find time to sit down and record it, and hopefully that'll happen in the next few days. But we do have a couple of new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to welcome this week, Robert and Scott. Thanks, guys. And then we wanted to let you know that we will have a new show for you next week, but with Christmas being next Sunday, we won't get episode number 176 out until the following day, Monday. So you can look for it on the 26th. Yep. Okay. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care and have a very Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. Thanks. Bye.